Welcome to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. My name is Anna Nupadier, and thanks for joining us. This is a podcast about rapid change in the legal industry. We'll focus on legal technology, knowledge management, law libraries, automation, and the business of law. On today's episode of the Modern Lawyer Podcast, I had the opportunity to talk to University of Dayton School of Law Dean Andrew Strauss. The law school is examining new ways to use online tools to make a legal education accessible to more students. In this episode, we hear Dean Strauss's opinions on how on-demand online education can sometimes more effectively educate the modern law student than traditional classes, the challenges facing law schools today, and the struggle inherent in balancing the traditions of legal academia with the demands of the new economy. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Dean Strauss, thank you so much for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. Well, good, good to be here, Anand. So, Dean, I always ask this question of, of our guests, and I'm especially fascinated in your response to this question. You're the dean of the University of Dayton School of Law, and uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be fascinated to know, uh, how did you get here? You know, was it your plan as a as a uh, twenty year old, or a you know, or a law student, or a, or or you know, a practicing attorney at, at any point, to be the dean of a, a law school? Uh, how did you get to where you are? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, it it was really a, a winding road for me uh, to find myself in this position. I never really aspired to be a dean. And I was actually quite, when I was younger, quite confused about whether I wanted to be a lawyer at all or really what I wanted to do. Um, when I graduated from college, I, I, I went to, uh, to Princeton. And when I graduated from college, I uh, got a Fulbright Fellowship to study uh, uh, indigenous groups in the Ecuadorian Amazon. And I think that was sort of the culmination of uh, experiences growing up, of traveling around the world. And what I really enjoyed was sort of adventure and seeing how things were done in different places. And so I, at that point, decided that not being able to really see a future in the Amazon uh, for me, uh, I decided that sort of law school, like so many people in that period, this was the early 1980s, um, that law would leave a lot of options open. So I was one of those people that went to law school because it kind of seemed like the way I could take abstract ideas and turn them into a kind of institutional reality. And so that really interested me. And when I got to law school without a clear vision of what I was going to do with it, I took international law my second year of law school without having much idea where that would lead and instantly fell in love with it. To me, it was idealistic. It was a way of trying to help build a global system that would reduce the chances of going to war, which always, since I was very small, had been a a real concern of mine. And it also um, was because international law wasn't well developed, the basic theoretical ideas of what is law, how does law work, were really practical questions in international law. And so I really enjoyed exploring them. And I was very fortunate that uh, my mentor in law school, 
uh, arranged for me to go teach at the National University of Singapore immediately following graduation. And that gave me, I taught a course on the Singaporean Constitution, and that really began to launch me on an international law career. I went back and practiced for a relatively brief time in, in New York City, and then uh, started uh, as a law professor uh, at the, uh, what's now called the Delaware Law School. Uh, I was there for about 25 years, and I really never aspired to be a dean. Um, I had the view that many law faculty do that that was, quote, going over to the dark side. And it wasn't until, uh, I think it was 20, uh, 2011, that I accepted the offer of my dean at the time to become the associate dean. And uh, probably many of your listeners to this, uh, to this broadcast know that that happened to be the period when sort of the bottom fell out for law schools. And so immediately I was thrust into this position of trying to think about uh, new sources of revenue, non-JD programs, uh, what to do about bar passage issues, and all of those sorts of things. And I actually found out that I enjoyed it and uh, that I had some facility for doing that. And so um, once I sort of got going on that path, the next obvious job was to become a dean. And a search consultant called me and said, uh, uh, what about the University of Dayton? And I came out here. I really liked it at the University of Dayton. And uh, the rest was history. From the Ecuadorian rainforest to the Singaporean constitution, I think our listeners will agree with me that that is one of the most fascinating and indeed winding paths to uh, legal academia and being a law school dean that uh, that maybe has been put on, on the record. I, I love that. I, and I, I love your eclectic background. Um, so, Dean, I, I know we want to cover a lot of things here on this episode. And so I want to ask you the kind of broad, intentionally broad question. What are your big initiatives at the University of Dayton School of Law? And I think you set up a lot of those, right? I mean, you came on uh, as, an, as uh, an associate dean uh, and then the dean, and you've come on at a very trying time uh, across legal academia. Um, what are what are the big initiatives, and how do those dovetail with our current moment uh, across law schools? Well, so I would say that you know, at a very high level, I branded sort of my initiatives uh, with the acronym BAR, uh, B-A-R, and uh, the B stood for the BAR and making sure that we have a really strong uh, uh, pedagogical model and uh, curriculum so that we're preparing all students to do well on the bar exam and we've done a lot, a lot that I think is very innovative uh, in that arena. Um, and the A is for admissions and it's a very, very competitive admissions environment out there. And so we've been doing a lot of new kinds of programming. We've started a leadership honors program here. Um, we've been doing a lot with financial aid, so admissions has been a whole large area. And the R is for revenue. Uh, the, the business model for law schools that was so successful, really, for a century is, is broken. And that is, is that the JD revenue, uh, the JD program is absolutely crucial to every law school. But 
with the decline in the numbers of students that want to go to law school, it's very hard to actually meet the budget needs with JD revenue. So that suggests all sorts of new kinds of, of uh, non-JD programming, which we're being very aggressive about as well. And that programming, I happen to believe that while the market may not be there for as many people wanting to pursue JD degrees these days, the society continues to be more and more legally complex. So we believe that we can really fill a significant market niche in training people in all sorts of areas uh, that, that are not going to become lawyers, but nevertheless need law. And the final thing that I would say is we're really trying to uh, uh, really lead the way in online education. And this is in the non-JD space, but it's also in the JD arena. Um, we're one of just uh, four law schools in the country that's begun right now as we speak. It's our first week of classes here. Uh, we have begun a online JD degree. And law has really been behind in this area. Of course, there's many kinds of graduate online degrees these days, but only four schools uh, have started doing online legal education. Traditionally, the ABA hasn't allowed fully online uh, hybrid uh, law degrees. Uh, so we sought a variance from the, the ABA rules and received it. And like I say, a few other schools have done that as well. Right, and I want to get into that last one in particular. I think I think you're you're uh, working through a lot of the common problems that a lot of law school deans have across the country. And and when you t we're talking about the the uh, difficult uh, admissions landscape, I think you were you were viewing it uh, from the side of a of a law school. Obviously, if you're a a, a, a applicant at this point, it's probably a very favorable <laughs> admissions landscape. I, I'd imagine. I want to talk to you about the online legal part of what you said. I think a lot of folks who are tuning into this podcast likely have some biases against online education, right? Um, you know, they think that online education is, uh, you know, low rent or, you know, not high quality. And I, I think what you're doing at the University of Dayton really turns that on its head. Um, and I want you to you get to get into – uh, how the online uh, education that University of Dayton is offering uh, is, uh, you know, its history, uh, the, the uh, kind of the, the various uh, ways that you've made it a high production and high quality educational environment, and all of those things to kind of push back against, I think, a lot of people's knee jerk against online education. Yeah, thanks a lot for that question, Anand, because, uh, you know, I very much agree with with the premise of, of what you're saying. And I found this as well, that there is some discomfort within the legal community with online legal education. Uh, I did, Before getting into this, I didn't fully appreciate that because I've been sort of, I guess I'm sort of a techie kind of person in some ways myself. Um, but yes, I, and I think part of it is, is there's a, a certain mythology, you might call it, to the study of law that sort of 
the paper chase idea that it's not really law school unless students are there in person and having to stand and and the professor you know berating them and being able to go back at Thanksgiving and say as everyone asks around this Thanksgiving table what was it like what was it like in is your first year you say oh it was terrible and you know it's all part of a almost a hazing right um, so I think people have a certain attachment to that idea um, but of course the world is changing and the profession is changing and I think to, the question isn't whether eventually there's going to be much more online in legal education but it's how we do it and trying to do it in the best way possible and that really segues in into your your question we're trying to really, and of course this is experimental, I should preface this by saying this is 1.0 and we're going to continue to learn and we're going to continue to improve. But I really do believe that the model that we're using, variations on the model are going to be something along the lines of what we and other law schools will end up perfecting. And so what is that? Well, the first part of it is is that every week students will do half of their their study, their actual course study, not counting the homework, in an asynchronous environment, meaning that the courses have been pre-recorded and that they will uh, engage in with those courses at a time and place of their choosing. And the other half will be a live interactive class that will be Brady Bunch-like with 25 or limiting section sizes to 25 students, you know, in little squares on a screen with the professor actually engaging the students. So the asynchronous part each week, I think, is in many ways going to be the most valuable part because when we talk about asynchronous uh, pre-recorded classes, people need to sort of get out of their minds the idea of a professor droning on before a, a webcam uh, and the students all having to sit there and listen to that online. That is exactly what we're not doing. The asynchronous classes are going to be highly interactive. So think about every three to five minutes the professor turning to the camera and saying, how would you answer that? And the students having to either video record or write out and answer, or in certain cases, answer, answer multiple choice questions. The professor in doing this is in a studio, a high-tech studio with three different camera angles. Some of our professors are using uh, students in the, in the uh, studio who they'll have a couple students sitting around a round table that they ask Socratic questions of. And those students answer leading up to the question that the students studying remotely have to answer. So to me, this is completely interactive. We've understood for a century that to teach law well, it needs to be highly interactive. Students need to make the material their own. And that's the origins of the Socratic method. The flaw in the Socratic method is, is that it's only one student oftentimes in a very large first-year class, answering the question at a time. So unless the other students are good at vicariously following along, uh, they may be daydreaming, surfing the web, whatever. Here, they have to answer the questions and stay up with the material. So I sometimes think of it as a Socratic method on steroids. 
And that then forms the basis of learning the basic doctrine that when they come to the synchronous class each week, where they're all at a particular place and time on the screen, they're able to explore in much more detail the material that the professor is able to present to the, to the students. And I really feel that for our faculty, this is going to up our faculty's game because they need to be very intentional about this course. The asynchronous material is pre-recorded before the course even starts. And when you think about it, the synchronous material has to sync with it. So they have to have every synchronous class completely planned out. They're able to use all sorts of visuals in the asynchronous material. So it's really able to help students who are visual learners. And then once a semester, the students will come on campus for what we're calling a get real week. That's relevant uh, uh, experience and applied learning weeks. And there they do all sorts of simulations. They bring the classes that they're learning that semester together. It's almost like to prepare for that week, like preparing for the final. You pull everything together and you really have to demonstrate knowledge of everything. So to me, this is actually a superior pedagogical model. And I believe that after using this, our faculty are going to end up flipping their classes and using a lot of this material for our residential program as well. I think it's going to up our entire game. And of course, it also makes law school accessible to all sorts of students that wouldn't otherwise be able to go to law school. Uh, this really helps you can do this anywhere uh, you are. So I want to get into exactly that, those implications from uh, uh, you know, online legal education, the fact that it expands out uh, who can attend law school and, you know, and this applies to people who might not have the resources to attend or people who may uh, just be far away from, uh, you know, the nearest law school. Uh, but before I, I get to that, I want to ask you, you know, why did you choose to embark on this experiment? As you mentioned, there's very few law schools out there who already are, are doing this. Um, you know, why not, uh, you know, and I'm putting this facetiously, but why not stay in your lane? And so I think there's a couple of answers uh, to that, Anand. I think the first is, is, is probably personality, and by personality, I mean my personality, and I also mean my faculty's personality and the University of Dayton's personality. I think uh, I, I like innovation. I like doing things new, and uh, some people, you know, embrace change, and some institutions embrace change, and I think we are also one of those kinds of institutions. Um, you know, Dayton is famously the home of the Wright brothers, and uh, the turn of the century, uh, there were more patents per capita in Dayton than any other city of the United States, the turn of the 20th century, that is. Um, and uh, our University of Dayton is a very innovative kind of place. So we're up for doing new things. And I think uh, a lot of deans wouldn't try this because a lot of faculties would be very resistant to this. But uh, like I say, our, our faculty embraces new, new ideas and new approaches. And uh, from our point of view, I think the ability to be on the cutting edge, I think it's a way of creating in terms of our own interest in the growth and dynamism of our school. It gives us a special identity. And in terms of the market, being in Ohio, this is a really, really tough market for law schools. 
Um, we have nine law schools, really ten. Uh, there's one law school right over the border in uh, uh, in Cincinnati in Kentucky, and uh, there's you know not that many in-state law students. And so this is an ability for us to really find new markets and get out around the whole country, and especially to these rural students who don't have other options if they're not mobile uh, for going to law school. So all of those reasons, I think, motivated us to want to branch out and, and really uh, innovate for the, uh, for the 21st century. Uh, Harvard. Really, uh, Dean, Dean Christopher Columbus Langdell, at the turn of the uh, 20th century, created the, the case method and the Socratic method, and every law school followed. And I really do believe that, uh, that those of us, the other schools and us, who are sort of embarking on this new uh, journey are really going to set a new model for legal education, and, and that's exciting. That's really fascinating, and I want to go back to a point that you made earlier, and that is that online legal education and asynchronous legal education opens up the doors to all kinds of potential students who wouldn't even be in the pool of applicants before, right? We're talking uh, folks who live in rural areas, people who don't have the resources to go to law school. Um, you know, a lot of those people have broadband internet, Right. I mean, they could they could make the trip once a, a semester to Dayton, but they may simply just not be able to relocate or, or commute. Um, uh, to what extent, you know, have you seen that play out? I know this is a kind of an early, early phase in the experiment, but uh, to what extent do you think it has already played out? And to what extent do you think it will play out in the future with respect to bringing in people from, underserved or faraway markets uh, and giving them a high-quality legal education? Um, yeah, we're already seeing it in our first cohort that we have. And in fact, I would say the that is the makeup of the entire first cohort. It's not all um, people who are from remote rural areas, but everybody in the cohort would have difficulty going to, say, a part-time legal program either because you know they have uh, child care responsibilities or work responsibilities that mean that they have to be at a particular place at a particular time. They can do the asynchronous, but they couldn't come to a school to do it very easily. Um, or you know they're just um, they're just too far away, even if they were within or they're just too far away in general. Uh, and, and are outside of commuting distance. So pretty much that describes the entire cohort. And look, law school gets a bad rap, I, I think maybe well-deserved, for essentially catering to the um, upper middle class and upper upper classes. You know, Do you view this as, as a way to democratize legal education? Yes, Anand, and, and there's two aspects of that. The first is not particularly financial. The first is that probably most of your, your listeners know that uh, the United States is a little bit unique uh, among countries in that law is a second degree rather than a first degree. And most, most of the world, law you go to law like going to college and you get a degree, although in some places that's starting to change. But in the United States, you have to do four years of undergraduate school and then three years of law school. Um, we actually do have a, a residential two-year program, which a few other schools have, but by and large, 
it's three years of law school. So that's seven years of higher education. And if you don't come from a certain type of familial background, where you're pretty much on an education track in a pretty intense way, then it's pretty hard by the time you know, you're 25 to have finished law school. So for people that might have come from a different kind of background where they're not already part of, the, of a sort of socioeconomic elite, and they might get themselves through college and pay for a lot of it themselves, maybe oftentimes you know, starting with a two-year college and then converting to a four-year college and then have to work a little bit to finish and all of that, and they finally start to realize uh, what it would mean to actually be a lawyer. They haven't grown up on a lot of around a lot of lawyers. And so they're maybe 30 years older when they finally realize, you know, I kind of missed the boat. I wish I was a lawyer. Well, then by then you have all sorts of financial obligations. You have all sorts of, of oftentimes uh, children, and it's really hard. So it ties into what I was saying before, that I believe that being able to have the flexibility of online legal education will open up a tremendous opportunities for those people. Uh, the other issue that's implicit in what you're saying is the issue of cost. Now, it, it happens to be the case that I think legal education, and this may surprise a lot of listeners because everybody talks about legal education is so expensive and how people can't afford it. I actually think that legal education, and this isn't at every institution for every student, but legal education is one of the great bargains today. And that may surprise people, but looking at it from the other side, the, the single largest budget item that I have is financial aid. And so we are giving tremendous amounts of financial aid. Um, it's not particularly at this point less expensive to go online in some cases. I mean, it depends on the financial aid that a student's going to get. In some cases, it's more expensive to go online right now. I do think that over time, like what happens when new technologies are first, uh, are first put out there, that there's a lot of development costs and that over time things, costs can end up going down. I think it's a question of how much we can scale what we're doing. Um, it's very, the big cost for us is faculty. And uh, it's not, you know, we have costs of bricks and mortar and buildings and all that. But the big cost is that it's really a highly individualized kind of education, at least the way we're doing it. And so that's, that's expensive for us. But like I say, I mean, I think that for students that are interested in this or in law school in general, there's some real significant uh, um, cost savings that people can get from financial aid these days. If we're looking into our crystal ball, Dean, um, is the law school of the future or at least is there a possibility that a law school of the future will be a totally virtual law school? I mean, you could get your equivalent of the University of Dayton Get Real Day in a rented facility uh, somewhere, but you could have all of the professors or lecturers and all of the students remote. Um, could that potentially work? I mean, that, that strikes me as uh, maybe an implication uh, much further down the road of, um, of online legal education. It absolutely, it already exists. I, I would start by saying that. There's, there's been, and this has been true for a number of years, when I say we're one of the first four law schools to start this, I really should qualify that by saying we're one of the first 
for ABA accredited schools uh, to be doing this. There are unaccredited schools where, you know, you can't take the bar exam except for, you know, there's a separate system in California. But there's, there's unaccredited schools that are all online. Um, obviously, there's quality issues. The bar pass rate tends to be very, very, very low for most of those schools. Uh, but they are taught all online. Uh, the big impediment to that has been ABA uh, accreditation rules. And I do think that with the trajectory of society that over time this is going to gradually change. I think if schools like us can show, you know, we're, we've been granted this variance as, you know, a way of the ABA saying, well, we'll allow you to experiment. And if you can do this successfully, the implication is, is that they should let other schools do this and let all schools do this. So I think the real question is going to be, can we show results? And we, part of what we did when we went and asked for a variance to the ABA is we said, we're going to really uh, assess this very, very intensively. And we've partnered with uh, what is basically a legal education think tank, Access Lex, to do significant assessment of our program. And yes, I think if we can show results, and I very much believe that we can, and, and uh, I believe that if our other uh, fellow law schools that are embarking on this can also show results, that uh, the uh, barriers to doing more and more of this will be down and we will begin to see law schools uh, do this and, and, and there's no reason why it couldn't supplant uh, on-campus education. You know, Access Flex was actually where I wanted to, to go next. Um, what's the nature of uh, the business of Access Lex and um, in what capacity is the law school working with them? I mean, I'm, I'm simply fascinated by the fact that there is such a thing as a legal education think tank. I mean, I think that, that that's very encouraging to me. But what's the nature of the work that, that you're doing with them? So Access Lex is an organization, uh, and I'm no, I'm no expert on Access Lex, so um, there's better people to talk to about them. But they were, uh, they were really in the business of, of loans for legal education. And when the government basically took that over, uh, they sort of repurposed themselves uh, with uh, some of the resources that they had into doing a lot of very, very helpful uh, uh, support for education where they're trying to figure out innovations in legal education in general and how we can all in the legal academy do a do a better job. Uh, our, the, the, this, this initiative with them is, is that they are very interested in uh, new approaches to legal education. They're very interested in online and so they're going to help, and it's a third party, so it's not just us doing it. There's more objectivity coming from Access Lex so that they can help with the, with the assessment and figuring out, you know, how does the results in a class compare to the results in a, in a residential class? Um, does it make a difference if it's more asynchronous or if it's more synchronous? Does it make a difference if you do more visuals? And they can really sort of drill down and look at sort of details around uh, uh, assessment. Got it. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. I want to go back to something you said earlier about creating more programs uh, to, uh, you know, that are not JD programs, right? I, uh, you know, you'd have to be living in a cave these days in the legal world 
to not have heard about the field of legal operations at this point, right? And I certainly view legal operations, and I think a lot of people do, as a growth industry and an industry that, um, you know, I should say a sub-industry across law uh, that will uh, hire and employ a lot of people, whether it's at a law department or at a law firm, to streamline and make sure the work that paralegals and lawyers do is high quality and, and quality checked and, you know, all of these things. And I think the pressure on that will increase in this new era of alternative fee arrangements and you know, push pushbacks against the billable hour. Um, what what work is the University of Dayton doing? Um, not just, of course, on legal operations, but on non-JD legal operations. So I think the the legal operations area is a really interesting one. It's not one that we uh, particularly ventured out into. We teach. Uh, like a course on law office management. We have been looking. We are trying to, uh, like I say, we try and uh, sort of look at the trends of the future and uh, this whole area of online and obviously artificial intelligence, uh, all of these areas and how you run these from an administrative point of view is a huge, huge area as you're suggesting. And so I think it is something that all law schools are going to have to continue to look at. Um, and it's, it really suggests all sorts of, of, of different possibilities. Um, the non-JD areas that we've been uh, involved with uh, are, we started um, a couple years ago a new program in government contracting. Uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base is here, is right here in Dayton and they do a lot of government contracting and procurement there uh, for the Air Force and so that's been sort of an anchor uh, for us to really be developing uh, this program. Uh, we also uh, trained uh, law students in countries overseas uh, who are interested in taking an American bar exam. Uh, that's been another non-JD area that we've been involved in. Uh, started a couple years ago on that. Um, we uh, are training students. We have an LLM uh, also online. This is more in the online space. We have an LLM for international students uh, that um, we provide, as I say, online and uh, that allows them to take the bar in a couple of, in a couple of states. Uh, those are the areas we have. What we believe we're going to be starting uh, next semester is a new patent agent program to train people to be patent agents as well. So these have been areas that um, have been really exciting. And as I say, there's a real need for people who want to be patent agents uh, to have legal training or people that are doing government contracting to want to have legal training. And so we're fulfilling a niche, and it also is a, is a market for us, frankly, uh, outside of just the JD market. Have you seen expectations among law students change over the years that you've been a professor, but now, you know, on the, on the as you said, the, the dark side of things, um, it, with respect to technology and with respect to maybe taking asynchronous courses even if they're in a full-time, uh, you know, three-year JD uh, um, course. Uh, I mean, how, what are the demands of the kind of modern law student, and how is it different than, uh, you, you know, uh, 15, 20, 25 years ago? This may surprise uh, some of your listeners, and, and I'm, I'm not positive that my observations are universalizable, uh, but 
I haven't really found in my own experience that significant of a difference with students today around their expectations around technology. In fact, students seem as traditional as a lot of faculty, older faculty, around these ideas. I do think it goes back to what I was saying sort of at the beginning of the podcast that I think there's a real kind of mythology around the way law is taught. And people come in having seen the movie Paper Chase, having read the book One Al, and various other TV shows about law school. And they have certain expectations about what they expect law school to be. And it tends not to be uh, technology intensive. I do think that's going to change. I think it's going to change very rapidly. Um, we're in something I think a lot of us don't always realize is because we feel like, oh, so much has happened in terms of the IT revolution. But we don't really think about the fact that we're still probably in the very early days of the IT revolution. And that it's still the cultural changes that are allowing it to infuse everything that we do are still happening alongside these rapid technological changes. So I do think it's going to happen, but I think it's been later to come to law school in legal education. But a lot of the, the legal technology and legal conferences that I go to, um, I, I think law schools kind of, um, you know, get criticized. And I'm sure you, you've heard a lot of this, right? And the criticism is that law schools aren't creating, quote, practice-ready lawyers, right? That law schools are kind of uh, creating uh, these lawyers who understand a lot of the theory and you know, they've read Marbury v. Madison, but you can't take that lawyer and pop them into a uh, mid-size or small or even big firm and just uh, have them, uh, you know, be able to submit billable units of time. Right. What's your response to that? I mean, is that ridiculous? Is that not the law school's responsibility? I mean, is that where business needs to come in? Or do you think law schools are um, not holding up their side of the bargain? So I, I have a rather definitive response to that, I would say. I'm very much a believer in experiential education. Uh, that's the idea of our Get Real Weeks, for example. And I do think people learn and lawyers, law students learn well by actually engaging directly in experience. I do think there's something to just learning pure abstract thinking outside of experience, just learning how to conceptualize devoid from direct hands-on experience, that that's part of what lawyers also need to learn. So that's pretty traditional and I think it's important. I am a basically a fundamentalist though about what we should teach in law. As much as I'm for innovation, I think that the core skill that we need to teach is the old-fashioned learning to think like a lawyer. And I think law schools are not necessarily doing the best job of that that they can do. And again, I think this kind of new pedagogical model I'm hoping can do better at that. I hear constantly from people in practice, including in some of the top firms in the country, that they're hiring associates who can't write. And I'm sure that will resonate with a lot of your listenership. That is the course goal of law school, that people need to think clearly and be able to reflect that clear thinking orally and in writing, whether it be to a client, a senior partner, a judge, uh, or whoever. And so I think that in that sense, 
we are falling down on our obligation if we are not doing a good job of creating that kind of practice-ready lawyer. In terms of that people are going to understand in three years of law school, every single kind of practice area that they could practice in and know all about, you know, exactly what, you know, uh, size font you need to file in district court, uh, in, in U.S. district court and in state courts and all over. We just can't do that. I don't think that that's realistic. I understand that it would be much better from employers' point of view to hire uh, people coming out that were just able to hit the ground running in every area, but I just don't think that that's possible. I do think that what is possible and people should demand of us is that we have clear thinking, uh, clear writing, clear speaking lawyers, and that they understand how to do legal analysis. And if we can do that, I think we're doing our job. Dean, if you had to uh, send one message to um, executives, partners, et cetera, at some of the biggest law firms in the country, uh, you know, these are AmLaw 50, AmLaw 100 firms, servicing some of the biggest uh, clients globally. Uh, what would your message to that group of people be in light of a lot of what we've discussed here today? You know, I think, I think that there's, there's always room for improvement, and I think it's really important that we have a, a really serious and ongoing dialogue. I mean, what we do obviously is very important to the people in firms and the way in which we're preparing them. And there's just a lot of, of room for thinking about different types of innovation. It, it is, I think, a little bit of just, you know, one could do sort of a counterfactual, I guess, and think about how instead of having law schools, maybe you'd have a variety of different kind of schools that would train people to be, do legal work in different areas. That, you know, for business, you would have people that would be trained to be business lawyers out of business schools or something, and people in uh, the criminal justice that would do criminal law. And the territory just happens to have gotten divided in this way that we have this coherent discipline that we call law. But I think the, a lot of, of sort of uh, creative thinking in the future can be about how to combine different areas. I don't think we have the institutional capability to teach everything to everybody, but I do think there's different ways of doing more combinations and that maybe there could be more specialization coming out of law school based on kind of combined uh, trainings. So that is a big area, I would think, and I think keeping the dialogue open uh, so that we can try and be as responsive as we can realistically be to the needs of, of the practicing bar. I really appreciate that answer. Um, that, that is great. Dean, I want to thank you for joining us on the Modern Lawyer Podcast. It's, it's a treat to hear all of this from your perspective. Uh, we, we don't have, I think, I think actually you might be the first law school dean we've had on the podcast. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you about a lot of these things that uh, I know a lot of our listeners don't get a chance to think about very much. So thank you for joining us. Well, that's great. I, I, I very much enjoyed it, and I thank you. Thanks for listening to the Modern Lawyer Podcast. We always love hearing from you, and we highly value your feedback. Reach out to me at onin at casetext.com, tweet at us with the hashtag ModernLawyer, and check us out at modernlawyerpodcast.com. 
We hope you join us for our next episode. Special thanks to the Case Text team, especially our producer extraordinaire, Abby Hadidian. See you soon.